Bow your hearts with me once again. Lord, we do come and we do confess our need of you. We come to your word now and we do pray that you would, by your spirit, work in our hearts. Father, open our minds to see and to receive your truth. But most importantly, I pray that these practical truths that you have in these verses that you would allow us by your grace to implement them in our walk. We thank you that you are faithful and we can work out our salvation. We can grow in our holiness because you are at work in us. We thank you that you promise to finish our sanctification and one day we will stand before you with great joy, perfect, blameless, and complete. I ask you for grace to take us through this passage of Scripture. In your name I pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Thessalonians chapter 5. And as Mike mentioned, this morning we plan to finish the book. The message that I'll preach to you will be entitled, Complete Sanctification. Now I assume that most of you, if not all of you, at one point or another either remodeled your house, or you have been to a house that was being remodeled. Now, I understand that some of you don't want to think back to that time, so bear with me for just a moment. A house that needs a remodel has issues. Otherwise, you would need to remodel it. Maybe you bought a fixer-upper, and there is just tons of work that you have to do so you can live in that house. Or maybe you lived there for 15, 20 years, and it is time to remodel your house. Now, I worked in construction for years, and I've seen a lot of remodels. And they usually go something like this. You begin with excitement. You start off because you're excited to get rid of your old stuff and to bring in the new and to have a house of your dreams. Then, as you begin to touch things around the house, you find that there are usually more issues that you thought. You find you touch a wall, you touch a, you know, you clean your closet, and you find something there that you didn't expect. And then the projects that you hoped you would be done with in days turn into weeks and sometimes months. On top of all this, during this time, your house looks like a war zone. You don't have a nice couch in the middle of your living room that at the end of the day you can just come and sit down and kick back. And because of all these issues, your budget runs a little low, your patience is a little thin, and you sit there and you wonder how you got into that mess. You sit in the middle of your living room, probably like in the bucket of pain or something, and you wonder, was my house really that bad? Did I need this remodel or could I just keep going as is? Now, our Christian life can be compared to a house remodel. You see, we all start out as a, this rundown shack that needs a lot of work. Oh, there is excitement at the beginning. You get saved and God begins to work in your life and some things to fall, start to fall off. The darkness begins to dissipate. There is, you know, some light and you think it's exciting and you're ready to move forward. You're ready to go on. You're ready to change your life. And as you begin to grow... As God begins to work in your life, you soon find out that the remodel of your life is not as quick as you thought. 
Some of the dirty closets of your soul have some things that don't just go away. The rodents that lived in the basement of your life don't just want to leave. The battles that you hope to win in a matter of days go on for weeks, months, and perhaps years. You see, construction zones are not places of enjoyment. In fact, they're usually dirty. They're usually, it's messy. And sometimes you find yourself in life where you are in this place where you're a mess. As you're sitting in the middle of your despair, you wonder, is it always going to be like this? Am I always going to live in a construction zone or am I ever going to enjoy a beautiful house that has been remodeled? Now you go through life and you're hoping that something will change. That some of the battles that you're fighting you will win and your life will become cleaner and more beautiful. Now if you find yourself in that place today or if you've ever been in that place, the passage that we have before us is for you. Now we've been studying this book verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and now we come to the end. Now, Paul wrote this book to a church that was a struggling church in some ways. It was a young church. It was a suffering church. And as Paul introduced this letter, he praised them for the great fruit, for this great progress that they made in the beginning of their journey. But then this church found, found themselves in some struggles, some issues that they were dealing with. And so Paul has to address those issues. Now, as we come to the beginning of the letter and the end of the letter, usually when you read through your Bible, those are, we can say, the most neglected parts of your Bible. Because usually you think, well, this is just the opening. Paul is introducing himself. He's introducing his readers. And let's just get to the good stuff in the middle. And then you get to the end. Well, well this is just a closing statement. So let's just, you know, move on to the next book. But you know, some of the richest things you have in the Bible, some of the richest truths that you have, they are found in the opening verses of the book and in the closing verses of the book. Because in the opening verses, usually you have authors give you in microcosm everything that they're going to talk about in the rest of the book. And then in the closing verses, in few sentences, in few thoughts, they summarize everything that they've been talking about in the book so far. Now, we look at the verses, we look at the closing verses this morning of this book, and this proves to be the case here. Now, as I said, Paul wrote this book for a couple reasons. First, he wanted to comfort and encourage the believers in Thessalonica. Young, suffering church. They demonstrated the fruit of repentance, and now Paul says, listen, you got to keep going. The battle is not over. You're just starting out. Not only did he want to comfort them, he wanted to correct them, specifically with the issue of second coming. Many times, as we will see in just a little bit, in the introduction, in the body, and in the conclusion of the letter, he's going to talk about second coming, because that was the issue that brought confusion to these believers. Not only to comfort and, and correct, but Paul also challenged them. This letter has many challenging commands, because Paul challenges them. There was moral laxity in the church. There were some people who needed to be confronted, needed to be rebuked. There was idleness in the church. And so in the body of this letter, Paul challenges these people that you cannot just live as you lived before your conversion. You have to change. God is now at work in you, and so you have to persevere. You have to grow in holiness. 
One of the key verses in this book is found in chapter 4, verse 3, where, we, where Paul says, for this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. I mean, don't you love the clarity? You don't have to wonder. You don't have to guess what God wants from you. No, he says, this is God's will for you. This is God's will for my life. This is God's will for your life. This was God's will for their life. And what was God's will? He says, your sanctification. You are not passive in your sanctification. Bible doesn't talk about that you just got to let go and let God do all the work in your life. You see, godly living will require maximum effort on your part. Now, just to illustrate how serious you should be about holiness, how serious you should be about sanctification, consider the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, he says, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is not advocating cutting limbs here, but he's not advocating toying with sin either. He says you should take your sin so seriously. You should fight sin as if your life depended on it. Because it does. This is how serious you're supposed to take your sin. Now, Paul challenged them. Paul commanded them to grow in sanctification. And now, as we come to the end of this book, Paul prays to God that God would do his part in their sanctification. You see, God never starts projects that he does not finish. Every project he started, he will bring to completion. I mean, we sometimes start projects at home, and because we run out of money or because we change our mind, we just kind of let them go. If God started a project, he will complete it. And so in the verses that we have before us, Paul is going to the Lord, and he is praying that what the Lord has started in the life of those who were in Thessalonica, that he would complete. As we unpack these verses, I want to give you three things to think about. First, we're going to look at the prayer that we have in verse 24, 23. And this prayer can be summarized with one phrase. Paul prays this, God, make them holy. Then you have a promise. And the promise in verse 24, Paul says, God will make you holy. That's a promise. And then he concludes the letter with some petitions. There's three of them. He says, you ought to pray, you ought to greet, and you ought to read. Join me as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 23. Paul says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your soul, may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We begin with prayer. Now as I said, verse 24, 23 can be summarized with this one phrase. This is Paul's prayer for them. God, make them holy. Now, up until this point, as I already mentioned, Paul gave them many commands. And as he concludes this letter, he reminds them that there is really only one way for them to obey the commands that he has already given to them. You see, you and I 
are entirely dependent on God for everything, including our sanctification. With the author of Hebrews, we can say regarding this truth that we will do so if God permits. Now, as you can see in verse 23, the emphasis here is on sanctification because he says here, God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Now, before we looked at the actual verse, let's define sanctification. What are we talking about? Now, it is important to differentiate between justification and sanctification. Paul is talking about sanctification here, not justification. What is justification? Justification is a declaration of God concerning you. Justification is a one-time event. When God, when you're standing in the court of God's law, and God looks at you, and based on the work of Christ, because of what, because of what he has accomplished on, your, on the cross for you, God looks at you, and he says, this person is just. This person has no sins to his account, and this person has the righteousness of Christ imputed to his account, and therefore this person is righteous. Justification does not change you. Justification is God's declaration concerning you. You are the same person. It is the judge who sits on the bench, and he says the way the court looks at you now, you are not guilty. It happens only once in your life at the moment of your salvation. Now, there are no degrees of justification. You can't be a little bit justified just like you can't be a little bit pregnant. You see, you are either justified or you're not. Justification is a one-time event when God makes this declaration about you. Now, if justification is declaration concerning you, sanctification, if we want to put it in the terms that we have here, is God's work in you. Sanctification changes you. Justification changes the way God looks at you. But sanctification actually changes you. When it comes to justification, Paul can say things like this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. If you have been declared just by God, God looks at you through Christ and he says, we were once enemy, but now we are friends. Now when it comes to justification there are three aspects of justification of sanctification that we see in the new testament first there is positional sanctification now positional sanctification is related to your justification and it is it takes place at the moment when you are justified listen to these verses from the book of hebrews in hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 we read by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. In the past, you have been sanctified. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now, you are positionally made righteous in the sight of God. You're justified, you're declared righteous. And when God looks at you positionally, he looks at you as if you yourself lived 33 years of perfect obedience to the Father without a single misstep. However, your position does not match your practice. Yes, you bought a house. It belongs to you. Your name is on it. But it's still a mess. You are redeemed. You are a child of God. But you're not an angel. I'm not an angel. 
So that's why you have not only this, uh, not, not, that's why you have not only positional sanctification, but you have the second part, which is progressive sanctification. A couple definitions for you of progressive sanctification. New Hampshire Baptist Confession says, sanctification is the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers of his holiness. This is the process by which God makes you more like Christ. Grudem defines the sanctification. He says, sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in actual lives. You see, we had nothing to do with our justification. This is what God did alone. But in sanctification, God works in us and we work. We work with God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, the verse that we read earlier, he says, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Notice there are two elements here. He has perfected, perfect tense. In the past, this has already happened. And he did that for who? For those who are sanctified, present active participle. Those who are continually growing in holiness, positionally, they have been declared righteous. The implication of this verse is simple. Those who have been positionally made holy practically grow in holiness. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this to the church in Philippi. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You don't work for your salvation, you work out your salvation. And you work it out, why? Because someone is working on the inside. Now how important is this progressive sanctification? We'll consider this verse from Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14. The author says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Which means that if you have been positionally declared righteous, you will be practically righteous. You will be growing in your holiness. And if you are not growing in your holiness, then you have every right to question whether something happened at the moment of your salvation. He says, if you are practically not growing in holiness, then you can question whether you have been made holy. Because all who have been made holy pursue Christ's likeness. So there is positional sanctification, and there is progressive sanctification. And then finally, there is a third stage, which is perfect sanctification. This is the final stage. And this is the final stage where your practice will match your position. If you, if you will, at the moment of your salvation, you're declared perfect, but you're still right here. And as you grow, as you mature, you're becoming more and more and more and more like Christ. And one day will come when your practice will match your position. Consider this verse in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. He says, but now you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and this phrase, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. 
Notice he calls the saints who are in the presence of God. He says they are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now they're perfect not only in their position, but they're perfect in their practice. They've been declared righteous. And when they are in the presence of God, since there is nothing unclean that could be in his presence, they are perfect both practically and in their position. So three aspects. Three aspects. You have your positional, you have progressive, and you have perfect. Now, having laid this groundwork, we now can look at the prayer that we have in verse 23. As you look at verse 23, I want you to see three things here. First of all, the source of sanctification. The source of sanctification. Paul begins his prayer this way. He says, he says now may the God of peace himself. May the God of peace himself. Now, Paul knew that. Thessalonians have no power in and of themselves to obey all the commands that he has just given to them. And that's why he prays, he says, now I pray that the God of peace himself. Now this is not the first time he said this in this letter. If you go back to the last section, where he finishes the first section of this letter, go back to chapter 3, verse 11. Look at verse 11. This is Paul's prayer in this letter. And he prays this in verse 11. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as you also are doing, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. See, that's why Jesus said that apart from me, you can do nothing. And nothing means nothing, because if nothing doesn't mean nothing, it means absolutely nothing. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now notice how Paul identifies God here. He says, now may the God of peace. Now this is a rich concept, both in the Old Testament and in the New. Many Pereira has helped me greatly with this. He says, we often think of peace as, you know, absence of war or absence of conflict. We think of tranquility. We think of a lake that is just like perfectly calm and there's nothing there. But you see, biblical peace is much more than absence of war. Biblical peace is much more than absence of conflict. And this goes back all the way in the Old Testament. For example, when God commanded Aaron to bless the people of God, in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, where he says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Now, we all know this word. We all know this word, shalom. The Lord may give you shalom. Now, this is, we're talking about something much more than just quiet. Something much more than just tranquility. This peace that he talks about, it speaks of this wholeness, contentment, tranquility, order, rest, security that you have on the inside, even if the world around you is going to hell in the, hell ba- in the, in the hand basket. That's what happens. Even when everything is falling apart around you, you're able to have this peace because you have God on the inside. You know, This whole concept of peace, it implies a relationship. Because you have to have two people to have peace. You can't do it by yourself. You have peace with someone. And when we're talking about God of peace, it's this God who, when you were his enemy, he reached out to you and he made you his own. He took you out when you were his enemy and he made you his son. 
He reconciled you. That's why Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God. Not that there is nothing there. No, you have God himself on the inside of you. And now he says, the same God who initiated your salvation, now he says, may this same God work out this progressive sanctification in your life. Now notice how emphatic this is. He says, may the God of peace himself. God of the universe is concerned about your holiness. God of the universe cares more about your holiness than often you do. Sometimes we allow things in our life and we just kind of think, okay, that's fine, it'll go. But God cares that you be holy. That's why he disciplines his children. That's why he doesn't just let them go. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 says, he disciplines us for our good. For what purpose? So that we may share his holiness. So that we may be sanctified, we may be like him. And he's so serious about your holiness that at times he might take physical life so that his children do not continue in sin. I mean, famous passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, communion passage, he says, for this reason, why? because you partake in the communion without dealing with your sin. He says, for this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number asleep. But if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged, right? We would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we would not be condemned with the world. God may take away your physical life so that you as his child would not continue in sin. That's how much he cares about your holiness. Now, the fact that God is the source of sanctification does not remove your responsibility, my responsibility. We are still commanded to obey all the things that come before this verse. So God is the ultimate source of sanctification. Notice second, the scope of sanctification. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame. Notice two words here. You have the word entirely, and then you have the word complete. God is after complete transformation. You see, he's not content with just facelift. He's not content with just putting touch of paint on walls that are rotten. No, sanctification is about complete transformation. Now, he gets very specific here. He says, may your spirit and your soul and your body. Now, we're not going to get into this debate about trichotomy versus dichotomy. Whatever you fall in, doesn't matter. Why? Because that's not Paul's point here. You see, when it comes to Scripture, the plain thing is the main thing, and the main thing is the plain thing. And the main thing in this text is that your soul, your spirit, and your body encounters your entire being, both internal and external. Now, because every single part of you is tainted by sin, that's total depravity, Every single part of you needs to be sanctified. And that's why Paul says, your spirit, your soul, and your body. Now today, people might argue about spirit and, body and soul, whether that's the same thing or whether that's different. But if you lived in Thessalonica, what would surprise you probably would be inclusion of the body in this list. You see, if you were a Gentile, you grew up in a society that did not pay much value to the body. You grew up in society that thought that body was disposable. That's why anytime you have passages in scripture that talk about resurrection, for them it was like crazy idea. Oh, I'm gonna come back again to this body? 
And Paul says that God cares about your body. God cares what you do with your body. That's why in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he goes on to say that that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, your body, in sanctification and honor. MacArthur adds here, and he says, if sanctification is to be complete, it will extend to every part of believer, especially the body, which thinks, feels, and acts in response to the holiness of the inner person. The aim of sanctification is to transform you on the inside, and that transformation that takes place on the inside makes its way on the outside. And that's why Paul prays that God would make you holy, both internally and externally. So the question is, when does this happen? And we come to the third, and that is the stage of sanctification. Verse 23 says, this will take place at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now at the beginning, I gave you three aspects or three stages of sanctification. And as Paul mentions here, as Paul makes sense here, he says, this will take place when you will be perfect and complete at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is talking about your final or your perfect sanctification, where your practice will actually match your position. Listen, in this life, you will never be perfect. No matter how hard you strive, no matter what you do, you will not be perfect in this life. But when you die, or when the Lord returns and the church is taken up, he says, you will be transformed. Now, because you don't know when that will take place, either personally or for the entire church, he says, you must be pursuing holiness at all times. Now, we looked at the details of this prayer that Paul has here. And I hope you see that these final verses, they're not just throwaway lines. Because every verse of Scripture is inspired by God. Every verse has something to tell us. Notice the two themes that we have in this verse. Our two themes that Paul has been hammering all along in this letter. We have the theme of sanctification, and we have the theme of the second coming. All throughout this letter, Paul was saying, guys, pursue holiness, your sanctification. God cares how you deal with your own body. Pursue holiness. And by the way, you're confused about second coming. Let me tell you about it. And everywhere he tells them that. He says, God is in the business of making you holy. You see, God brings people into your life that you would rather avoid. God brings trials into your life that you would rather not have. And he does so to make you holy. Now because there was confusion about the second coming, notice how many times in this letter he refers to the second coming. Go back to chapter 1. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9, listen to this. It says, For they themselves reported about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And right there... He says, and to wait for his son from heaven. In the very introduction, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. In chapter 3, there is a large section that deals with second coming and meeting the Lord, but specifically verse 13, in that prayer, he says, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father. When? At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In chapter 4, verse 15, he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain 
until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then the final reference to the coming of Christ is in our verse. If you keep reading and you go to 2 Thessalonians, it has much to do with the events that take place when Christ returns. So as Paul closes this letter, he again reemphasizes what he has been stressing all throughout the letter. I looked at the prayer. Let's briefly consider the promise that we have in verse 24. In verse 24, we read, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. You see, if the prayer could be summarized, God, make them holy. The promise that you have in verse 24 is God will make you holy. You see, verse 24 guarantees verse 23. How can it be? Because you're perfect? Because you're good? No. It has to do with God. It has to do with the nature of God. You see, your only hope that you will persevere to the end, and one day you will be perfect, you have one hope. And that one hope is simple, that God is faithful. You know, we sing a song often. He will hold me fast. Now just think about the lyrics. It says, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When a temper would tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's faithful path, for my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. And then one more verse. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. This phrase that his promises shall last. And his promises shall last because you have promises like verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you. And he will also bring this to pass. You know, God is in the business of finishing the projects that he starts. If God began his work in you, no matter how bleak your situation might be at this time, he will finish it. Go back to Romans chapter 8. Let me show you a couple of verses here. Romans chapter 8, two verses, Romans 8, 28, 29. You all know this, these verses. 29, 30, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the first among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now what's known as a chain of salvation, and notice there are five elements here. In the eternity past, God did two things. God foreknew and God predestined. During your lifetime here on earth, God calls you, and when you respond to him in faith, he justifies you. And then the fifth element here is that God glorifies. You know this, they're only past tense. He has done that. He foreknew. He predestined. He called. He justified. Now notice that no one falls out anywhere in between. 
Every single one who was foreknown was predestined. All who were predestined were called. All who were called will justified. All who were justified will be glorified. Every single one of them. Why? Because God is faithful. Is it because they're so good? Is it because they're so smart? Is it because they're so faithful? No. One answer. God is faithful. He who calls you is faithful, and he will bring this to pass. So what is his prayer? God, make them holy. By the way, let me tell you. Let me give you a promise. God guarantees that he will make you holy. Does that negate everything that he said previously in the letter? Absolutely not. You are to continue, and you are to pursue holiness. Finally, as Paul closes the letter, he gives three petitions. He has three petitions here, or three commands, you can say. Number one, in verse 25, he says, you ought to pray. You ought to pray. He says, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. A simple verse. We might just say, well, pray for us and move on and keep going. But think about the context. Paul has just finished praying for these people. Paul was just praying that God would make them holy. And now he says, hey guys, would you please return the favor? We're praying for you. Please pray for us. In the way that we're praying for you, you pray for us. In fact, when he started the letter, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 2, he began by saying that we... The three men he mentions in verse 3, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul began this letter by saying, Guys, we are constantly praying for you. And now we ask you that you would do the same, that you would continue to pray. You see, prayer is a means of sanctification. Think about it. Paul the greatest apostle, you can argue. And he's asking these young believers to pray for him because even I can do it on my own. I mean, it's not surprising because you remember Jesus himself in the garden? Jesus looked to his disciples and he says, hey guys, pray, pray. How much more do we need prayer? Now it's amazing how you put these two verses together. Verse 24, 24. You have absolute sovereignty. God will sanctify you. And in verse 25, he comes along and says, by the way, guys, pray. I mean, Paul, why do we have to pray if we have a promise that is, going to, that is guaranteed it's going to happen? You have God's sovereignty, and you have human responsibility, and they go hand in hand. Not one or the other. Both of them are true. God will complete your sanctification. But guys, pray. Pray. Not only that, you have the second petition here. And he says, greet. Greet, verse 26. He says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, if you lived in the Middle East at that time, and perhaps even today, kiss was a customary greeting. Now, this explains why this verse is so short. And Paul does not give any explanation regarding what he's talking about. But notice, he adds one word here. He says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. So he makes a distinction. He's probably not just referring to a regular greeting. He just say, hey, by the way, guys, say hi to one another. That's probably not what he's saying. 
Because if we're talking about believers, there is a deeper meaning here. When he's talking about believers greeting one another with this greeting of a holy kiss, he says we're talking about fellowship. We're talking about peace. We're talking about reconciliation. Kiss is an expression of love. It is an expression of affections. You don't just walk around kissing people, or hopefully you don't. And so when he says here you are to greet one another with the holy kiss, he's talking about the fellowship or the atmosphere that you have to have in the body. If you can't even look people in the eyes, you got problems. But he says you ought to have such a fellowship with one another that you would be able to greet him, as he says here, with this holy kiss. Now think about it. Even today we have this expression when people are fighting and we tell them, like, listen, you should just, you know, kiss and make up. What are we talking about? Hey, just deal with your issue. Forgive one another. Be reconciled to one another and have peace among you. And that's what Paul is talking about here. This is the way you ought to have fellowship with one another. Because, you know, they had some difficult people in the church too. They had some people who didn't want to work and wanted to use everybody else. They had those people. They have people who were unruly in the church. And Paul says, listen, if you're a believer, you ought to have that kind of fellowship. If they're your brother, you ought to have that kind of relationship because he says, greet the guys that you like like that. Is that what he says? No. Greet all the brethren. Listen to the way one commentator puts it. He says, Paul's command to greet others with the holy kiss expresses more than exhortation simply to greet one another. It serves instead as an implicit challenge to his readers to remove any hostility that may exist among them and to exhibit the oneness that they share as fellow members of the body of Christ. First, pray. Second, greet. Third, read. Look at verse 27. I adjure you. I put you under an oath. The elders among you. By the Lord, to have this letter read to all the brethren. Again, we might say, well, you know, okay, just read the letter. Big deal. But think about the context. He's talking about holiness. He's talking about fellowship. And now he says, you ought to read this letter. When Paul wrote a letter to this church, he wrote one letter. Perhaps to the pastors of the church. And they had responsibility to read this letter to every single person in their congregation. He says, read this letter to the people in your congregation. Why? Why? Think about Jesus' words in John chapter 17 where he says, sanctify them in the truth. And then he says, what? Your word is truth. How is God going to make you holy? God is going to make you holy by exposing you to his word. And that's why he commands the elders. He says you ought to read this word to the people. Why? Because that is how God is going to make them holy. God uses his word to conform us to the image of his son. They didn't have their own copies. They couldn't go home and read the letter. They had to show up to church and they had to listen to somebody read the letter to them. And the word of God brings about sanctification. That's why Paul says, listen, read the letter. Read the scripture. The Lord uses that in order to make you holy. And notice as he concludes this letter in the final verse, he concludes with the standard grace greeting. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Listen, all of this can only be accomplished one way. It is if the grace of God works among you, then you will be able to obey these commands. Now you look at your life, and I don't know where you are in your remodel, 
in your spiritual remodel. But we look at these verses, and I want to do two things. I want to encourage you, and I want to challenge you from these verses. First, the encouragement. You have verse 23 and 24, and let me tell you, God is going to finish your sanctification. Regardless of how tough it is now, maybe you're just like Paul crying out, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of this death. Listen, day is coming when you are going to be perfect because you have the promises of God. And you are going to be perfect. Why? Because you're great? No. Because God is faithful. As Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, he says, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's an encouragement. That's an encouragement to persevere. God is at work in you. And you can get up today and tomorrow and day after tomorrow, and you can continue to grow in your wholeness. Why? Because God made a promise to you. But second, there is a challenge. Challenge. Pursue sanctification. Listen, don't make peace with sin. Because you have peace with God, don't make peace with sin. Fight as if your life depended on it, because it does. Because that's what Jesus was saying, because that's why you have all these commands. You have all these means of grace that we have even in this passage. Do not neglect them. Do not neglect prayer. Do not neglect fellowship. Do not neglect the word. Because those are the means by which the Lord will sanctify you. As I thought about these last couple of verses, notice how there is a parallel here to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts chapter 2 is a famous verse when it says that the early church, that they continued, devoted themselves to three or four things, depending on how you read. Apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, which is breaking of the bread, and to prayer. Now you look at our text here, and you have those in reverse order. In verse 27, you have apostles' teaching, because he says, have this letter read. Then you have fellowship, where he's talking about greeting one another, having that relationship, that peace with one another. And then he says, prayer, prayer. And that's why the first church was so effective, because they devoted themselves to these things. You and I are to devote ourselves to these things because God is at work in us. And because God is at work in us, and his grace is abundant toward us, we can be holy. Though we won't be perfect in this life, we will be perfect one day. Why? Because God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed at how good and gracious you are to us. We are amazed at the promises we have in your word. We pray for grace. We pray for obedience that as we walk from this place, that we would once again devote ourselves to holiness. That we would once again commit to grow in our obedience to you. Give us grace, we pray, and allow us to do what we cannot do on our own. In Christ's name, amen.